Hello, I'm Karen Pascal. I'm the Executive Director of the Henry Nouwen Society. Welcome to a very special episode of Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. This week, we have chosen to replay a podcast, which first aired on March 13th in 2022. It was just two weeks after Russia had invaded the Ukraine. Our guest that day was a good friend of Henry Nouwen's, Ukrainian Greek Catholic Archbishop Metropolitan Boris Gudziak. This interview gives so much history and understanding of the relationship between the Ukraine and Russia. It also gives us the history of the Ukrainian Greek Catholic Church, which was deemed illegal by Russia for almost 43 years. I learned so much in my conversation with Archbishop Metropolitan Boris Gudziak, and I came away very moved. I'm honored to share this episode again on Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Your Grace, welcome to Henry Nouwen, Now and Then. Oh, thank you. It's, it's a real grace in these turbulent times to uh, think about Henry and, and kind of be in his presence. Well, I know that you today are the Archbishop Metropolitan of the Ukrainian Catholic Archparchy of Philadelphia. Today you represent Ukrainians in the United States. But you're someone who spent a lot of time in Ukraine. Maybe you want to give us a little bit of your history and then give us a sense of, of an update from your perspective of what's happening. It is an incredible time we're living through. Our hearts are breaking, but I can't imagine more so than what you might be feeling. My story is kind of uh, meandering and uh, complex. I was born uh, in Syracuse, not too far away from where you are, um, in New York State. And uh, I met the man who was the head of the illegal Ukrainian Catholic Church. He was exiled in 63. I met him as a 7-year-old in 1968. And then after college, I went to live and study with him in in Rome, and I became a seminarian for Ukraine in 1980 when, you know, it was like becoming a seminarian for a diocese on Mars. You couldn't go there. But after three years in Rome, I I went to Harvard uh, to do graduate work. I was kind of a slow learner, so I was in the program for nine years. And the first of those two years coincided with Henry's two years at Harvard. And uh, I had written, read a book in Rome uh, by this author. I was very impressed by it. I thought it was called, you know, his last name was Nguyen. And I, when I remember reading it, I, cause he was at Yale, it said he's at Yale. I remember reading it and saying, boy, wouldn't it be wonderful if there was somebody like this at Harvard since I was already going there. And lo and behold, after one semester, I discovered that this Henry Nguyen guy is, uh, at the divinity school. So I took his course I started going to the daily prayer at his house, and those that of you who are familiar with Henry's life, you know, that was kind of the foundation of, of his life and of his day. We had half an hour of um, the office, then half an hour of silence, and then the Mass, the Eucharist. There were about 10 of us that were daily regulars. So we got to know each other basically in prayer and silence, uh, And that went on uh, over the first two years. Uh, Henry would spend one semester traveling, but it was the the spring semester of uh, 84 and 85 uh, that we were together, that I was kind of in his circle. And um, it took me a while to finish my doctorate. In 92, I went to Ukraine. But in the interim, Henry moved to Dalar's Daybreak, yeah, and... 
uh, I started coming there. And then when I moved to Ukraine, at the invitation of Zanya Kushpata, who was at daybreak, and myself, Henry came twice uh, to Ukraine, and he wrote a diary about it, which uh, the original hasn't been published, but the Ukrainian uh, emerged, uh, was published uh, in the fall on the occasion of Henry's, the 25th anniversary of Henry's date. And uh, immediately after the publication, I had a chance to present it in New York City to uh, President Zelensky. Um, because it really is a good snapshot of what post-Soviet Ukraine was like in, in the early 90s, in mid-90s. Uh, so, yes, um, uh, Henry had an incredible impact on, on my life. Uh, I pray for him you know, daily, and he, he's with me, and uh, he... You know, people in Ukraine, not too many knew him directly, but those that can who see, you know, how I live, how I speak, I think might be able to identify uh, how Henry influenced uh, my spirituality and uh, and the way I try to communicate. You know, it's it's interesting because for those of us in North America, and probably for those of us who are not a part of the Ukrainian uh, Greek Catholic Church, we're not really familiar with that reality that your church was illegal in Russia for almost 43 years, from 1946 to 1989. Correct, yeah. Uh, it was an underground church. It was a church in the catacombs. Tell us a little bit about that and what happened. How did it come out? Sure. Well... You know, this is very pertinent to what is happening today. In the last 250 years, every time there's been a Russian occupation of a part of Ukraine where the Ukrainian Catholic Church ministered, the church gets strangled. It can take a year or two, sometimes a decade or, or two decades. But sooner or later, the church is strangled and even rendered illegal. Uh, and from, as you said, from 40 Six to 89, it was uh, illegal, and it actually was the biggest illegal church in the world. And it seemed like they were, you know, extinguishing it, because out of 3,000 priests who were there before the war in 39, for about 4 million faithful, um, there were only 300 left by 1985. This is the time when I was introducing Henry to, to, this, to this world, and he took great interest in it. Uh, and now we, we're back at 3,000 priests. Uh, we have kind of 800 seminarians for the global community of about 5 million Ukrainian Catholics. Uh, so this is a sign of miracles, of, of the power of prayer, of uh, you know the, the grace that comes from the sacrifice of people who give their lives with the ultimate love. They, they, they sacrifice their lives for their brothers and sisters. And that's why during this crisis, we um, as a church in North America are asking people to do three things, to pray, because prayer moves mountains, uh, to be well-informed, and to help uh, where they can. Well, it's one of the reasons we think it's so important that we get a chance to talk with you today, because I would like to echo those words to our audience for Henry Now and Now and Then, because I know Henry would be wanting more than anything to be alongside you and helping in all of this. So I would echo that we want to uh, pray. We want to be well-informed about what's going on. 
and do whatever we can to help. And today, um, we will put links to anything that you are recommending along with what we can what we would like to put out there. You know, here, I'm based in Canada. In Canada, we have the largest expatriate uh, community from the Ukraine. Over a million people have come to Canada from the Ukraine. So we have a great love for our Ukrainian Canadians who have added so much to Canada over the years. So our hearts are, are, are one with you in that. But let me just at this point, really ask you maybe to give us a little bit of an understanding. I, I mean, I have to admit I was ignorant about, and it, it really hit me, this whole business about how Putin and the Russian Orthodox Church plays a part in Putin's plans. I think it would be interesting for us to understand because it sounds like the head of the Russian Orthodox Church just wants to take back everything in Ukraine. That's part of the, the vision, isn't it? Well, yeah, it, it's it's a sad story. You know, uh, all Christian churches are revisiting their history and repenting about their role in uh, colonialism and empire building. Um, Jesus, you know, wasn't about building uh, empires and uh, the kingdom of God is not a colonizing um, phenomenon. It's a community of love, of service, of, of going down instead of, you know, building yourself up uh, you know, on thrones uh, that are supported by nuclear missiles. Um, so what is what is happening um, is that uh, 16 days ago on February 24th, um, Putin escalated a war that had actually been going on for eight years. 14,000 people had been killed and it, you know, it really devastated Ukraine's economy. Uh, the purchase power of the Ukrainian currency already in 214 lost two thirds of its value. So people lost two thirds of their savings and, you know, the, the, the value of their salaries went down uh, by two thirds and the country, he thought the country would collapse. He was bleeding it by waging the war in Donbass and by annexing Crimea. Um, well, it didn't collapse because uh, the Ukraine Ukraine had in 1991 900,000 troops when it came out of the Soviet Union, but it was not interested in war. And by 2014, there were 6,000 battle-ready troops left. 6,000 out of 900,000. Wow. It also was uh, one of the great um, holders of nuclear weapons. In the early 90s, Ukraine had the third biggest nuclear arsenal after the US and Russia. Ukraine had more nukes than China, France, and uh, the United Kingdom put together. And in 1994, Ukraine unilaterally became the first country to disarm its uh, nuclear arsenal, receiving in exchange territorial guarantees from Russia, France, United Kingdom, and the United States. And, um, you know, the country, the people wanted to go forward. There were 15 million people killed through the world wars and the totalitarian regimes. Uh, of course, first and foremost, the Soviets, uh, the communists, but also the Nazis. Uh, and people didn't want to go back to that totalitarianism. They wanted democracy. They wanted transparency. Uh, when they had uh, 
presidents who did not uh, hold on to these principles, hold to these principles, they voted them out. Uh, there's been six presidents uh, in the 30 years of Ukrainian independence. In Russia, never in Russian history has a president been voted out of office. And the real reason for this, uh, the first war in 2014, and now its escalation in making it you know, really a comprehensive war, uh, is not the, the, the danger of NATO. NATO is a defensive alliance, and it, it had no business or interest or desire to in, in, encroach on Russian territory. I, I just described to you how Ukraine demilitarized. Ukraine was not a military threat. But it had, a, it had a very dangerous disease for Russia. It had the virus of democracy. Uh, as Putin built up his uh, autocratic, you know, oligarchic kleptocracy, where there's a few people that can basically rob the country. These are these oligarchs that are now being sanctioned, but who have been, you know, welcomed in, in, in many countries, their money, you know, filled investment accounts in, in, in London, uh, banks in Switzerland. It was spent, you know, in uh, Paris perfume shops and in, uh, in the casinos of Monaco, you know, for all these years, laundering this ill-gotten Ill, uh, Ill uh, money. What, what uh, democracy next door, what a free press, uh, freedom of religion, uh, a vibrant civic society in Ukraine uh, threatened uh, Russia with is that this could undermine the, the dictatorship that uh, Putin uh, was building. And so he decided to crush it. Um, there were different attempts. I mean, already 15 years ago, he told George Bush, Ukraine is not a real country. Uh, he said 17 years ago that the collapse of the Soviet Union is the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century. And he wants to reverse the collapse of the empire. He wants to return to empire. Uh, and Ukraine has, you know, over 40 million people. It builds the biggest airplane in the world. It, after the U.S. and India, it's the third greatest outsourcer of computer programming. Wow. It's got 200 universities. It produces 11% of the world's wheat around 50% of the world's uh, sunflower oil. It's got some of the most fertile land in the world. It was called, you know, for, for, for in the 20th century, the breadbasket of Europe. Hitler, Hitler actually took train cars of Ukrainian land soil and tried to, you know, transplant it to Germany. So Putin, uh, you know, has had... Uh, uh, a long-term uh, desire to quash democracy in Ukraine, quash this virus of freedom, and to actually uh, reconquer uh, the country for a new Russian empire. And we're seeing, you know, the, the aggressive, brutal uh, manner in which he is trying to do it right now. It's so frightening. It's so amazing to to the world to watch so it's been a little more than two weeks but to watch this kind of sickening destruction and uh and watch a people that just want peace it's terrible it's terrible your hearts must be breaking what do you want to uh, recommend that we do at this point 
Well, yeah, it, it you know it is is very difficult. Uh, I I served there for 20 years. I just returned from Ukraine a couple of weeks, three weeks ago, um, and you know I'm in contact across the country with bishops and people in business and the Ukrainian Catholic University students, um, relatives, because um, I serve as the kind of minister of foreign affairs of our church, the head of the Department of External Church Relations. And we're speak as we're speaking, I'm, you know, I've kind of moved my offices from Philadelphia to Washington because this is where there's a lot of um, need for clarification and information about what is going on in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, Ukrainians are are shaken, but you know most of us when we call Ukraine are really inspired by the fortitude of the people. Yeah. People are are defending the country. First of all, you know it's it's kind of a biblical David and Goliath story. Yeah. Uh, Russia's military budget is ten times as big. It's got about twelve times as many uh, airplanes, even more in terms of tanks and and other. Uh, uh, tactical weapons, and then of course it has a big nuclear arsenal. Um, but uh, Ukraine has won this war morally. I mean, everybody of goodwill in the world knows where the truth is, where the, where the justice is, um, and where the injustice is. Uh, Ukraine is actually winning the war on the ground. Uh, there, with with. Uh, disproportionately high Russian losses. You know, nobody's nobody's happy that they're poor. These poor Russian kids are being thrown into this imperialistic project and are, are you know, being cut down. Uh, but they're not doing well, uh, and they're not they're not motivated. There's there's no reason. It's a senseless war, and many of the Russian soldiers know it. While the Ukrainians know that if they don't defend their cities, their hospitals their families, uh, their churches, you know, they're just going to be destroyed. They're going to be leveled. Um, so it's terrible to see all these refugees. There's more than 2.5 million that are out. And within, you know, in the next few days, there'll be another million that's outside and probably two more million are, are getting ready to move. Um, and so it's, it's really important to pray because yeah. prayer, prayer, moves mountains. We pray for the conversion of Vladimir Putin. We pray for the Russian Orthodox Church, who will be sullied for decades uh, for not only abetting, but today encouraging the war. There's a scandalous document out today uh, from uh, Patriarch Kirill. Uh, uh, the Russian spiritual leaders, you know, are, are not defending the Ten Commandments, you know, thou shall not kill. Uh, they're not. They're not uh, arguing for the refugees. They're not uh, supporting peace. Uh, unfortunately, they're they're supporting colonization and empire building. And in the 21st century, for Christians, for churches, that that just is not only morally scandalous, but it's so out of step um, with with. Uh, what what the world is expecting from the followers of Jesus. It's interesting to see how it's united Europe. It's it's united the world really. When you look at it, it's been it's been so amazing to watch in the span of just a little more than two weeks. Well, you know, I think 
um, David Brooks in the New York Times uh, wrote that people are believing in something. People see faith. People see that people in Ukraine are willing to give their lives for this. Ukraine had only 150,000 troops uh, after when the war was, um, you know, being escalated. I mean, they went from 6,000 back to 150,000 because of the eight-year war. But there are 200,000 volunteers that have joined in the last two weeks and another 100,000 people that have come, some from Canada, uh, some from the U.S., most from European countries. They've come back to Ukraine to defend uh, these values, to defend the innocent, to defend the poor. Uh, So there's incredible motivation. And, you know, Eisenhower said it's not so important how big the dog is in the fight, but how big is the fight in the dog? Prime Minister Trudeau yesterday, he said the ferocity and strength of the Ukrainian people inspire us all. And I think that captures really that sense. The world is seeing something truly heroic. And as you said, a moral battle that uh, is being is being won uh, it's It's profound to watch because in the seasons that we've lived through, this just is heroic to watch what's going on. You know, you, you pointed out uh, Ukraine has united the world. It, it has given new purpose to the European Union, which, you know, had, had England move out through Brexit. Yeah. Uh, all these fissures uh, uh, showing up in Europe. And, uh, you know, the previous American administration t- tried to undermine not only um, NATO, but European unity. It wasn't interested in the transatlantic relationship with Europe. All of this is just suddenly, you know, snapped back into an alertness and into a, a sense of purpose uh, because because of this witness in Ukraine. And, you know, when you hear the president speak, when you see the church there, you know, uh, the bishops uh, are in place in, in these different cities. The papal nuncio is in Kiev. I just talked to uh, two bishops in Kharkiv, two uh, Catholic bishops in Kharkiv. And, uh, uh, you know, they're there with the people. They're there distributing uh, humanitarian aid, which is uh, being uh, brought by, you know, uh, the diocesan and parish networks to people. And uh, the Catholic community is tiny in Kharkiv, uh, so it's, you know, feeding all comers, all people. And people are saying, you know, we never noticed this church here, but uh, thanks thanks, thanks for giving us some bread and some medicine. Um, it's it's been a, a turnaround. You know, in the 21st century, we live in a time of great subjectivism, of great uh, deconstruction. Um, we're kind of a confused lot. Uh, we question many of the things that have been uh, fundamental for society and civilization for centuries. And uh, this this witness is giving great clarity. There's something special when somebody gives their life for their friends. Jesus calls it the greatest love. And why do people, why are people able to do that? Because they believe that their ultimate sacrifice gives great fruit. There's a belief, I'm convinced, even among those that don't go to church, and, you know, most Ukrainians aren't regular churchgoers because of the communist legacy. 
But they believe in eternal life. They believe in love. Uh, they believe in profound values, in justice, in in equality, in uh, you know social responsibility. Uh, already in 2014, European young people were shocked that uh, Ukrainian youth and students were getting shot. You know, during these protests, uh, these unarmed students, the Heavenly Hundred, as they were called. Uh, they were they were you know mercilessly shot by snipers uh, in the middle of the main city uh, with you know midday with the cameras rolling and they they had European flags in their you know hands they and people said well, who would die for Europe who would die for this community uh, Ukrainians are giving purpose mm-hmm. you know to civilization uh, to the European Union. Uh, and they're reminding us of uh, the ultimate values and the fact that sometimes they, they cost. Freedom is not free. And sometimes even the ultimate sacrifice is warranted. But it's, it's warranted and people take it on because they believe in eternal life. It interests me. Uh, I mean, obviously, one of the characters that has risen to the very top in the midst of this is President Zelensky. Just that sense that sometimes there's a moment you're called into history and you stand up because you're standing up for the right thing. And it's been inspiring. I'm sure that's inspired others. Uh, But you're right. What comes back is this sense of character within the country, within the people who've made a choice that they want a free life. They want to have the kind of freedoms and democracies and, and values that that are better than and are richer than uh, anything that is being offered by uh, Putin in in the Russian vision. Hopefully, you know, uh, I think there'll be a major transformation. Uh, there are very difficult days ahead. It's not inconceivable that uh, Putin could turn to, for example, tactical nuclear weapons yeah. to knock out Zelensky. You know, it hit a bomb that uh, obliterates just one tenth of the city, the yeah. government quarter. Yeah. Um, he's he's already kind of activated the preparedness of his nuclear arsenal, and he's war- uh, threatened that you know anybody that opposes us uh, will see a reaction that the world has never seen before. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's already done things that nobody you know nobody expected. Yeah. The annexation of Crimea. You know the the war in in the Donbass, and now you know yesterday uh, the maternity ward in mm. uh, maternity hospital in Mariupol yeah. uh, was was uh, targeted, and the Minister of Foreign Affairs uh, admitted they were targeting it because he said there were troops there, but there were no troops there. Yeah. He said there were no no you know women there, but you see the pictures of the pregnant women being carried out on stretchers. Yeah. The mayor of the city said that 1,300 people were, have been killed in, in these two weeks in that city. It's totally surrounded. There's no electricity. Uh, there's a lack of water and food. Uh, people are dying. You know, a child died of dehydration. The president pointed out that's probably the first time since the Nazi occupation of Ukraine that something like that happened. Um, and uh, people are dying of starvation. They're, it's cold. Uh, uh, the humanitarian corridors that were agreed upon through negotiations in previous days 
were shot upon. Mm-hmm. And they became, as the head of our church, as Beatitude Sipposlauschuk said, they became quarters of death. So th- these are warm c- war crimes. The, this is this is state-sponsored terrorism. Uh, the idea is to generate as many refugees as possible, empty the cities of women and children so you can more freely kill the men, oh. uh, get the people out so the destruction in the the slaughter of women and children will not be, you know, kind of a, a used against you. But also the goal is to create a humanitarian refugee crisis in Europe. Yeah. Uh, there could be as many as 10 million refugees. I mean, yeah. when 1 million Syrians came into Germany, this shook up the whole society and the political system. If 10 million people pour into uh, the European Union, the European Union will have great problems. And yeah. that's what Russia wants. Yeah. It's destabilizing. It's, it's interesting. You know, earlier when you were talking about the humanitarian quarters, when Henry died, he had promised to come back to Ukraine and he was going to bring things that he thought were needed. And his brother Laurent Noun picked up that mantle and Henry Noun Sticking, which was the Henry Noun Society in the Netherlands has on a regular yearly, bi-yearly basis brought truckloads of supplies into Ukraine where it was needed most and has supported the L'Arche movement that was there. I'm sure that you're familiar with Laurent because obviously Laurent was involved in getting that uh, diary of Henry Nouwen's uh, published. written, published, yeah. yeah, which was really was really wonderful. So. In a sense, the very opposite of this uh, incredibly evil plan, incredibly evil and destructive plan, the opposite was, uh, you know, Christ's response in us is to love and to give and to pray and to believe and to be there present for our brothers and sisters. Yeah. Well, uh, Laurent, uh, you know, has become a good friend. Those who know him knows, uh, you know, you know, he... He, you know, looks a little bit like Henry. Uh uh, He talks very much like Henry. You know, his English sounds just like Henry's. Uh And um, he he made over 100 trips uh, to Ukraine with big tractor trailers, uh, which he packed himself with a few friends with all kinds of things, computers and desks for schools and, you know, humanitarian things and things for psychiatric hospitals. Uh, and when I served as bishop in Paris, uh, covering the Ukrainian Catholic parishes in France, Belgium, Netherlands, Luxembourg, and Switzerland, Lauren's house was kind of a, a home away from home when I would be in the Netherlands. We would come in with our priests, seminarians, our, our, our choirs uh, for for services and for conferences. And Lauren, you know, loved us and welcomed us and um it, it, uh, he's, he's been an incredible uh, friend of Ukraine and, and uh, a personal friend and a friend of our church. Um, Laurent, you know, I, I think he'll be offended if I share this with you, wasn't too interested in what Henry was writing when <laughs> Henry was alive. And in fact, Henry told me, you know, my, my family, they're, they're really not too, too keen on, on my books and, you know, my, you know, this spirituality that I uh, care to share. But then he had a conversion, uh, or if you will, uh, I mean, he discovered the depths of uh, what Henry was sharing. He discovered Jesus, uh, and um, he became a very practical apostle. 
uh, Laudant would give me hell a lot because, you know, you say, you watch out, are you really, you know, uh, mindful of all the poor around you? I was responsible for developing a university, so it was, you know, a, 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 an academic project. But, but uh, we did, under Henry's influence, from day one, because Henry was there just as we were doing the feasibility studies, the planning in 93, 94, we opened up in September uh, 94. Uh, we decided to build the, the, the school, the Ukrainian Catholic University on two pillars, the two M's, the martyrs and the martyrs, marginalized. The martyrs were those who in the 20th century, you know, carried the faith through the totalitarian tunnel and uh, they met the greatest challenge of the 20th century, which was kind of uh, the totalitarian attempt to crush uh, the human dignity of, 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 of the person. And we thought if we can look closely at that, uh, we can learn how to face challenges in the 21st century. So we did an oral history project interviewing 2000 of these people. And Henry met some of the people from the, the underground uh, when he visited during those two years. The other M are the marginalized. And uh, under, you know, the influence of Henry and uh, that relationship with Zanya Kushpata, we decided that the best way to address the trauma, the transgenerational trauma of the genocidal history that uh, uh, the communists left was to introduce um, right into the heart of the university our friends with special needs. See, people who've been traumatized, uh, who've been violated, and who from their childhood are taught by their grandparents, you have to be careful of the other because the other is dangerous. The world out there is dangerous. You can get arrested. You can be sent to Siberia. You can be executed. You can lose your job for saying a prayer. You don't trust the other. So you put, up, put, put on a mask, put up a facade, and build a wall. And you kind of peek out to see if that other person might not have it out for you, might not be an informant. It really breaks down trust, even in the family. And, you know, the, the archives now show that, you know, wives were informing on their husbands, husbands on their wives, neighbors, members of families, people at work that work together you know, were, were conscripted to uh, provide information to the KGB, which, you know, was where Vladimir Putin worked. Uh, our friends with special needs, they help build trust. They break down those walls and facades and help us take on, down our masks. Because when you meet one of our friends, um, they basically, with all their being, ask one fundamental question. Can you love me? Do you love me? And uh, so we, we've invited um, our friends with handicaps to be tutors of human relations in the universe. They live in, this, in, you know, in the dormitory. They, they help in our cafeteria. They helped in my you know, office when I was a rector, uh, president of the university. Uh, they're part of our community, and I think it's the first university in, you know, in history that has placed the mentally handicapped at the heart of the identity of the university, not as a social project, but at the identity. So it's the martyrs and the marginalized, and that is what Henry brought 
me into and helped us, you know, kind of conceptualize. And uh, this university, you know, it has the highest incoming SAT scores of any university in Ukraine. So the most talented kids uh, come to this school. It's academically very competitive. But we want to make sure that our competition is not against, you know, the, the Beatitudes, mm. that it's not, uh, it's a competition to build each other up, not to bring each other down. And in light of, you know, that gospel vision, this war is just completely devastating because it's killing, it's marauding, it's destroying and it's it's very sad that, you know, there are Christians who are publicly behind this war. You know, I am really struck by your phrase that tutors of human relations. I think that the Ukrainians right now are tutors of human relationships for the world in their in their sense that no, they will not give in to what is so so immoral and so dreadful and I'm really moved by that description of what's happening with your university, Martyrs and the Marginalized. Karen, I want to ask you and, uh, you know, all uh, the listeners uh, that, uh, you know, are inspired by Henry's legacy, uh, to be steadfast in, in your prayer information and support of Ukraine, not just this week or this month, because, you know, the the world's focus on Ukraine is going to change. But the trauma that already has been inflicted, it might get much, much worse. Uh, Putin is announcing that he's not going to stop. He's going to conquer the whole country. And the only way he's going to do that is by reducing city after city to rubble. Uh, these, this country, these people are going to need the support of the world for, for a long time. Uh, so put, put the people in your, in your prayer and, uh, get the message out, get your friends, maybe to listen to our conversation. Um, there's a lot of disinformation there. There's, you know, the, the, the political extremes on the right and left have often been uh, funded by Putin, particularly in Europe, um, you know, Madame Le Pen in France, uh, the right wing uh, presidential candidate in the upcoming elections, her party has been publicly, openly funded uh, by, by um, uh, money from, from the Russian government. Uh, Brexit was something that was supported uh, by uh, Russian funding and Russian uh, disinformation. We see the, you know, elections in the U.S. and in other countries that are influenced. Yes. Uh, this is a global issue, and Ukrainians are the ones who are confronting it. And they're paying the dearest price for it. And I think they deserve the support of the world for a long time to come in the future. Boris, I thank you so very much for that word, that challenge. And we hear you. And we will continue to hear you. We will not let go. We will pray and we will be uh, your allies and the allies for Ukraine and not be silent and not be silent. That I commit to. And, and I know that those that are listening today will, will join me in that. Uh, we will have links to anything that you're recommending in terms of ways to support and ways to uh, aid 
because aid is going to be needed as well. And uh, we'll have that on our website. I promise you that. Sure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the vision you've shared today and for the honesty. And our hearts are with you, and we will be praying. I promise you that. Thank you. God bless you, and thank you for uh, keeping Henry's legacy. And I invite uh, you know all, all good friends and followers of Henry to come and visit a land where he found uh, inspiration and where he left so many fruitful seeds that have given life to um, ministries, not only for the handicapped, but through the handicapped to the country. There's a university built on the vision that Henry helped bring to Ukraine. Boris, I love hearing how Henry Nowen has been such an influence in your life and that he has had such an impact. You know, Henry, uh, you know, I didn't want to say it this way, but Henry was the closest friend of my life. We were we were very, very close friends. I wasn't, you know, kind of maybe necessarily a big public friend, uh, uh, but we were we were really, really close. And um, his, his death was, of course, it was a shock. I came to the funeral in Canada. I flew from Ukraine. Uh, but uh, Henry has been one of the greatest influences in my life. Uh, and, uh, you know, he, he taught me how to, uh, to preach, uh, how to speak. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not in his league. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, what, what, what good there is in my preaching is very much influenced by, by him. And, you know, I pointed out in the conversation how, you know, his introduction to the world of L'Arche, you know, influenced the project of my life, uh, the university. And that was all supported by L'Arche, by, you know, by Daybreak, by Henry. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but in that uh, sabbatical journey uh, book, yes. which is, you know, he was kind of writing it right you know when he died uh we uh, he, he put it in there we met in in august of 96 i had been teaching at harvard in the summer school and he was in peapack new jersey and i went down there and uh we discussed things and he was going to come the next academic year he was going to spend in ukraine wow he was going to come and teach and write in ukraine isn't and that amazing? He told me, I haven't told too many people this, but um, he was going to go see Mrs. Croc. Yes. You know, the wife yes. of the guy that found in McDonald's. She had taken, you know, she was taken by Henry's kind of message. And she would uh, she would take the prodigal son book and uh, put it in uh, leather bindings. And that was her Christmas present to, you know scores of people uh-huh. and she would fly Henry down to uh, San Diego I think it was she would send her private yeah. plane and pick Henry up and and after we met in Peapack Henry was going to go see her and he said I'm going to ask her for a million dollars for your school uh, and uh, he saw her and uh, I imagine he did ask her uh, but then he suddenly died, and I kind of never had the 
courage to you know knock on her door at that time because the annual budget of our school at that time was about two hundred thousand dollars the whole school <laughs> yeah yeah I mean salaries were were twenty dollars a month <laughs> for, for for faculty anyway you know those are some just little little tidbit stories but uh, uh, they tell me much about your friendship yeah. you know what I sense is I sense you were meant to pick up the mantle and you picked it up. And it gives me joy, too, to see the finish or the continuation of that uh, love for Ukraine, that, that Laurent picked that up and was yeah. so yeah, committed he's, he's to it. wonderful yeah. friend, you know. Yeah. Well, Karen, I'm very grateful to you because, uh, you know, these have been uh, some very difficult weeks. And, you know, we knew that there was a great buildup, so it's been months, actually, where we... You know, have been, I mean, running around the world and trying to, you know, get people to understand what what's happening and what what's about to happen, and just spending a little time uh, with you, uh, being prompted by you, and remembering the great graces that God gave me through Henry has been a a great consolation for me today. Oh, thank you. I, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. It won't be long before we talk again, and hopefully it will be yeah. a conversation of rejoicing. I pray that. Yes. Be well, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. God bless. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are replaying this important podcast one year after it first aired. I trust that you come away from this interview with Archbishop Boris Gudziak profoundly and deeply moved and determined to be prayer partners with all Ukrainians at this moment. I think you probably also got a deeper understanding of who Henry Nouwen was and how Ukraine shaped him. I have good news. The Ukraine Diary by Henry Nouwen with a foreword by Archbishop Boris Gudziak is coming out in English this March. We'll have links in our show notes to this very insightful and moving account of Henry's love and commitment for the Ukraine. We're going to post links in our show notes to all the things we discussed today. There you're going to find links for very vital ways you could be a blessing to the people of Ukraine. If you enjoyed today's podcast, we'd be so grateful if you take time to give us a stellar review or a thumbs up, and please share it with your friends and family. Thanks for listening. Until next time.